Hello and welcome to the eighth wonder of the podcast world. Yes, today we are <laughs> we are covering the making of King Kong. We did a lot of research. I'm gonna I'm gonna bring in my research assistant on this as well, uh, Jason. Hello, Jason. Oh, hello, hello, hello. Um, I'm very, very excited to talk about my favorite king in the yes. history of the world. Yes, uh, you know, as long as you don't suddenly skip to, to Jesus and make this a religious <laughs> podcast, then I would really be like, oh, man, you read the wrong books, but also what important do you mean? books. The King of some. Kings. That's what we're talking uh, about. Today. <laughs> <laughs> Technically, that does, that is applicable. We'll get that eventually. <laughs> um, but, yeah, I, we between us, there were 22 books that we read. Uh, I actually read a few more books. Now, keep in mind, some of these books are just – there was just maybe a chapter or two of them used, right? So it's kind of, uh, you know, it, it, we didn't read 22 full books, but there was a lot of research and a lot of tracking down books that are out of print right now. Um, and I think that's one of the reasons why this is actually going to be a very valuable podcast is that we're kind of unearthing some things that are just almost uh, lost to time, really, um, because... The, the st In the story of King Kong is um ostensibly different old white drunk men um claiming that they're the real king kong um loudly into uh whatever microphone they can get in front of their drunken faces you know i'm getting so much more excited every time you guys say anything <laughs> it's almost like it's it's basically the story of king kong is that you have to dismantle a bunch of other people's episodes of drunk history and figure out what is the truth this yeah and i'm not sure we did that but we'll try to make this entertaining and make this fun and we're also joined by sophie hello sophie hey guys it is so good to be back and i can't stress enough that for those of you that listened to the last episode that i was on i'm so excited to be here and to have not had to do any homework and so i know very little about any of the stuff y'all are going to tell me and i can't wait Awesome, awesome. So let's just start at the beginning. And the beginning the beginning of King Kong is definitely Marion C. Cooper. Marion C. Cooper was a short, and he was also a short-tempered man, born in old Jacksonville, Florida. The, the greatest place on earth. Yes. Uh, the greatest place on earth. <laughs> where all great things begin, Jacksonville, Florida. <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, it's where Ash wants to end up in Ash vs. Evil Dead, exactly. so it's got to be great. Exactly. Hail to the king, baby. Hail to the exactly. king. Exactly. Hail to the king. And, uh, you know, again, accurate. Um, October October 24th, 1893. We are talking about a man who was born before the 1900s, which is just kind of crazy. Yeah. 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 Um, so, uh, Jason, there was a there was a quote by uh, Marguerite Harrison, who we, we kind of discussed the last episode, um, the famous explorer who joined them on um, – the journey to make the their, their very first movie that that made it uh grass yeah marguerite yeah marguerite harrison's a very important character in the life of marion c cooper and uh ernest was um because of grass right um well she, she also she also literally kept cooper alive during the war <laughs> yes, right like she definitely did she's an amazing human being um honestly um she's she did a lot her life is incredibly interesting there's not a lot we i think we can fit into this podcast about her um but she is um a woman of note i would say um an underrepresented uh woman in history right as a journalist yes yes a hundred percent well she was also a spy and she yeah. like <laughs> yes founded all yes. of these like amazing uh, organizations for like women's explorers and everything like that like if you are at all interested in i would say like just the history of feminism marguerite harrison is an yes. extremely important individual to kind of look into when are you guys doing a follow-up episode just about her we could i mean honestly sophie um we could we could take one person from this we could pluck one person from this um story every person that we're going to talk about pluck them out and probably do an entire podcast about them um they are this this story is bananas in so many ways because is it's that so, a gorilla pun it, you know, listen listen yes but also it, it is like you know Mary Cooper had the 
insanest life. Ernest Schuzek had the most insane life. These people put their life on the line every day. They lived like, if if the stories that are we are going to tell you are to be believed, which some of them may not, shouldn't be, but they lived like fucking Indiana Jones, every single one of them. It's insane. Um, so a, a, a quick uh, description of um, Marion C. Cooper by Marguerite Harrison. Short. Good start. Short, muscular, and thick set. He's a thick boy. With sparse sandy hair, a sharp pointed nose, eyes like blue china buttons, a pugnacious jaw, and an aggressive manner. He was disdainful of all the refinements of life, which were soft, quote unquote, in his opinion. Stubborn as a mule, moody, quick tempered but generous, and loyal to the point of fanaticism. Marion's turn of mind was essentially dramatic. He was forever striving for startling climaxes and sharp contrasts. He already possessed the flair for the bizarre and the unusual and the vivid imagination which had made him one of the most remarkable directors in the film world. But at that time, his ambition was to become a great explorer. So, um, yeah, I mean, I think that's really important to understand that Marion C. Cooper, I think, thought of himself first as an explorer, as a person that was like, you know, in the heart of darkness, exploring the jungle. 100%. 100%. I mean, it all kind of started, at least his fascination with gorillas was kind of started from a book he got as a child, which was about equatorial Africa. And, uh, you know, that book featured prominent, like, depictions of, you know, things that were very outdated by even by that time. Um, it was made by people who just, you know, they knew that news would not travel the way it does today, so they could literally make up anything about another continent. And gorillas were seen in, in this book, like, taking off women and stuff like that. Oh, yeah. And white dudes in the early 19th century loved making shit up about other countries. Oh, 100 percent, 100 percent. When 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 his his first big big bat with adventure was in World War One, and right when World War One started, he tried to sneak into Britain, but he was caught. He hopped on a boat, but he didn't have any passport, so he like made a fake passport, and they were like, "This is not a real passport. Go home." Like, what is going on here? Uh, but he did eventually end up joining the war in 1917 when he was a fighter pilot for America when, you know, we, the America did not... One of the things about World War One that is probably really important to note, um, America did not join World War One at the beginning. And really, in, in many ways, the fact that they joined so late in the war actually did help the allies win the war because it was all these very fresh troops and world war one is one of the grossest horrible wars in history um if you ever want to be depressed read about world war one world war two also awful uh but just the 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 ways that you would fight in in those those days uh was very well, for americans we can paint ourselves even though it's, you know, we entered World War II so fucking late and allowed so much ugly shit to happen. I mean, we had Nazis in New York City, you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, but we love to paint ourselves in World War II as being the good guys versus the evil Nazis, right? Which is a really easy thing to do. World right. War One uh, is a little bit messier, which is, I think, why we... It's not as clean of a narrative as World War II, so I think that's a lot of the reasons in, you know, an American history class in high school, they don't love talking about things that are messy, that don't have clean narratives, right? Right, right, So we hear exactly. less about the shit that happens in World War One as a result. It's a complicated war. It's fucking complicated. Yeah, it's it's one of those things where in in Canada, we actually do quite a bit on World War One because of it's complicated, and also because... Um, Canadians were involved with that from the very beginning, so it's like a very personal war for Canada, um, and it's a it's very it's a very interesting uh, to learn about the kind of dichotomy. But anyways, going back to Marion Cooper, uh, when he was a fighter pilot, uh, what he was flying was a plane called the Henkel He One Seventy Seven, which was nicknamed the Flaming Coffin. 
It really inspires a lot of confidence in your machine. Uh, our industrial revolution was really kind of just getting to things like planes. And as such, um, when you went into war with a plane that was all made of wood, accidents are going to happen. And one of those accidents happened with Cooper. Uh, and he was behind enemy lines. And when he went down, he received super serious burns to his face and his right arm. He was captured by the Germans and was a prisoner of war until the uh, World War One ended. You know, when we got into this, when I got into this, um, and, and, you know, when we started um, coming to talk about this podcast, um, I'd read, um, previously, I'd read uh, Living Dangerously, which is, I think, the the best book if you want to get an understanding of Marison Cooper and what a legitimate badass this dude is. Like he, you know, look, when I started, I was like, oh, how much of this stuff that we're reading, just him making shit up and, um, you know, essentially just make telling war stories, right? That are, you know, make him look good. It appears that Marion C. Cooper was a legitimate bad motherfucker. Like yeah, uh, we'll, he, we'll get it. We'll get into it. And but like, uh, especially when we get into the stuff that involved Poland, um, there are yeah. uh, there are testaments to uh, his abilities even today uh, that that are that do exist in Poland. As a Polish, mostly Polish American, um, he is one of the few Polish people that I could probably be say he's a is a badass. You know what I mean? For for his bravery, he was offered the Distinguished Service Cross. He declined it. He stayed in Europe to help with the relief effort after the war, which, again, you don't really kind of understand just how bad it was after World War One because World War One, uh, you know, it was fought in trenches, and those trenches just took so much out of uh, every economy in the world because they had to send supplies and, and all of this stuff. And um, it, it was a real huge mess in Europe after World War I. Uh, but in this time, while he was working, he met Ernest Beaumont Schotzak. And Schotzak was actually born in Council Bluffs, Iowa. Hey, Midwest. Yeah, there you go. You got a Midwest boy. He was born June 8th, which is the same day as my sister. And now I will forever remember it because Ernest Schoenzak. I'm just kidding. Um, he, was born <laughs> in 18, he was born in 1893. So, like, these guys are born the exact same year. Um, so these guys are the same age. Uh, Schoenzak, uh, he became a war photographer. And then he stayed behind after the war to help with the relief effort as well. This is when both men crossed paths. They crossed paths in at a train station in Vienna. It just seemed like it was kind of like a run of the mill. They were at a train station, both like waiting to go on to their next missions, and uh, they just had they struck up a conversation that must have made some kind of an impact because years later they would kind of uh, get back together. <laughs> it, it's one of those things. Like I, I really firmly believe that there's just some people who are meant to meet each other and do great things together because without the other one, the history of cinema is radically different if these two men do not meet 100 percent, and and both of these uh both of the men were involved in the polish russian war <laughs> but the thing is that shodzak was working with the the red cross on the ground whilst cooper he flew an air squadron that he kind of helped make of like american pilots who had stayed behind to form yeah. the relief effort and he ran over 70 missions until again he got shot down and captured by the Russians. Bad ass. I mean, flying a plane essentially made out of balsa wood that just catches fire, crashes, right? You know, like, I just want you to picture in your heads being in this fucking plane that's called the Flaming Coffin and it catching fire. And, and the things he did once he crashed, the way that he moved and manipulated people is straight out of a, a, a spy novel 
Like, right. No, exactly. Because like once he once he crashed, it's it's worth noting that when he tr- crashed, his leg was fucked up for the rest of his life. Like this was a bad crash. Well, again, he survived two plane crashes, and plane crashes again have always been nasty. But it was just fire and brimstone back then. Like it was nuts. You're in a plane uh, but- called a flying coffin. Exactly. Exactly. And he still managed to get out of that plane. The Russians came and they captured him. And he still managed to come up with a plan so he wouldn't get murdered because he had to make sure that they didn't know that he was somebody like up high, that he was any type of commander because apparently the Russians would have just murdered him on the spot. And uh, he basically was posed as somebody who was a much lower rank. So they just were like, "Okay, we're just going to put you in a work camp. As soon as they put him in the work camp, he managed to escape. And uh, he got quickly recaptured and got sent directly to Moscow. Moscow, super deep in in Russia, right? Like, this is a crazy, crazy thing because he managed to escape from that camp in 1921. Who is this guy? It's it's insane. It's insane. And, like, one of the things that you kind of get from, from this experience is one of the things they had to do in order to make sure that they truly escaped was at one point he had to kill a man with his bare hands and this is a this was like who among us hasn't been there though you know oh of course of course always always killing men with our bare hands but but when you think about this uh you know as a pilot there's kind of a like there's there's kind of a cognitive dissonance you can you can put there's a little bit of a of a gap between yourself uh but this is the one time where he was really he was there he 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 murdered this man and he well he killed a man to survive and and you know that was uh what he had to do or else he was going to go back to moscow um when he made it back to poland this time he actually did accept um some honors uh he accepted the cross of the brave and uh, he actually had a kid while he was there, and he would send payments to this kid until his death. Um, in Warsaw, right now, Warsaw, Poland, there is still a street named after Marion C. Cooper because of what he did. These stories, right? Like, I, you know, I read a, you know, when I read history, you know, especially around this time, you sort of think like, what? Especially around war, right? Um, you think like a lot of this stuff is probably to some degree propaganda, right? Like, um, men are men and you, you know what I mean? And like, these are stories tried to build little boys up to be tough, uh, tough men. Right. Right. These, but when you start digging into Marion C. Cooper, you know, um, life you start thinking well maybe people really were fucking more badass back then like the shit this dude did is jaw-dropping you know um i i probably would have died in that plane before it hit the ground in the first accident I would have died trying to lift that plane off of the runway. Like I, <laughs> I would have probably tripped on my way to get into the plane and died. And can I just say, as someone who generally has anxiety about flying, the idea of being in an airplane that is that unsturdy and terrifying, and it crashes and maims you forever, and then you just get right back in one and keep going is well yeah it's kind of crazy because we're gonna get into it but he had he still loved flying oh yeah it was it was one of his big passions still and all this shit we're saying is the least notable things about this man right like oh yeah oh yeah (laughs) i mean these are the things you actually have to dig to find out right (laughs) right like it's what's it's really it's really quite crazy crazy uh but ernest chodzak and marion c cooper they met again um, when Marion C. Cooper, uh, he, he kind of went back to New York for a while and was, he, you know, he was, uh, you know, he's a newspaper man for a little bit and he was doing some odd jobs and he eventually thought that like, he was kind of bored. He wanted to do something that was like kind of fun and like was an adventure. So he joined up with a, a captain named Edward A. Salis- Salisbury to travel the world. And when he was working with Salisbury, um, they lost their cinematographer. I think he just quit. Like the guy is just like, this is a terrible job. I'm quitting. And then when he quit, uh, Marion C. Cooper suddenly went, oh, you know who I should call? Ernest Chodesack. And, um, you know, Chodesack was like, yeah, sure, I'll do it. So he joined the adventure and uh, they just became uh, lifelong friends. 
they even on this journey they even filmed their first movie um but the problem is um the boat caught on fire and that entire yep. all of the footage they shot for that film was lost yeah and that was um of ethiopia right so yeah yeah, yeah. and again like you know, you you just you just think of the the things that have been taken away from this man, like already, right? Like he decided after working for years and months on a terrible ship to get all this documentary footage, only to lose it in a fire, and then decided once they got back, they're like, well, you know what? We're gonna do it again. We're gonna try it again, and uh, that's when uh, Cooper. And Shodzak made their own production company called Cooper Shodzak Productions. And their first film was called Grass, A Nation's Battle for Life. Okay, I have a quick question for you guys, which is that at this point, it just feels like Cooper would be justified in having like a healthy fear of fire. Yeah, and I'm just think. curious why we're why we're doing a movie about grass because it seems awful flammable. It makes <laughs> makes me nervous for him. That's good. That you know that, that's fair. That's a fair thing to do. Um, I watch this movie. Not a lot of grass. Not a lot of grass to be honest with you, because most of this movie is about uh, a tribe of the Bektari tribe uh, as they're trying to summit mountains. Like these guys are following. Uh, this journey, which is just absolutely insane, of all of these people with no climbing gear, no nothing, climbing the mountains, sometimes barefoot, and, like, they're going over with tons of people, tons of supplies, and they're just going up these steep, steep mountains. And, you know, uh, that both men had to, to do this with the tribe, and this is actually where, um, you know, uh, Marguerite Harrison comes in. Um, she joined them on the journey because basically uh, Cooper needed funding and, you know, she gave him some funding. But she was like, all right, but, you know, you have to you have to bring me on this trip. Like, I'll give you some money to make grass, but you have to bring me on this trip. And, and that's what happened. And I think it's important to note, Sophie, that these are very different types of filmmakers than you would think of as filmmakers today, right? Like they viewed their life being in danger as integral in, in creating film. Um, they, they create a motto was basically the three D's, which is distance, difficult and dangerous, right? That's, you know, when you're watching King Kong, right. And they're talking about the director filming, tigers and lions charging the camera that is Ernest Shuzdak like he that's how he viewed his work is I'm going to put a camera in the most difficult farthest away and most dangerous place I can possibly put myself and my crew and we're gonna film it because that's what great filmmaking is is if people's life aren't in danger right that's not worth making yeah yeah, hundred percent. That's that's kind of how they felt, and it, it's worth noting that if you listen to any uh, interviews with Shodzak about this trip, he complains about Harrison a bunch, and all of his complaints are exactly the type of dialogue that make it into King Kong. Like all of that, all of the things that Jack Driscoll says is what he pretty much is what shodzak says about harrison so you're like oh wow what a what a shitty dude like he must be like super sexist and he he was in many ways but his after they 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 did uh grass uh cooper went and he toured the the film uh on like the i think they they originally were just going to do it as an educational film but it actually got uh big funding so it actually had like a big wider a wider uh release um and when cooper was doing that shodzak just didn't care Shodzak was like i'm not going around and like going to all these lecture halls like i don't care about this so he took a job in the galapagos islands to do some filmmaking uh because they needed uh they needed a filmmaker and which is where he met his wife ruth rose so ruth rose was a broadway actress and she stopped being a broadway actress when a strike happened and when that strike happened she joined the New York Zoological Society 
And when she began, they were like, all right, you're just a research assistant. And then, like, she just was so vital to the team, they eventually just had to be like, fuck, okay, you're a research technician. And she would accompany both of these men on Chang and Four Feathers, uh, which were the next two movies. Uh, But it's really, like, Ruth Rose is, again, one of those people that you could do an entire podcast on. Yep. Because, like, can you have... Can you imagine the amount of sexism she must have faced? Like, she was on, okay, already the world is sexist, but she was on, like, an old-school boat, <laughs> right? And to do some of these journeys. And, like, she's she's going up against the, the zoological society. And, like, yeah. you know, you, you they're imagine probably sexist now. The, the treatment that Faye Ray's character gets in King Kong, I'm yeah. sure, is analogous to what Ruth Rose, and probably much, much worse, right? Yeah. Um, but, you know, again, Ruth Rose, incredibly important to this story. Um, and, it, you know, and because of that, incredibly important to the history of cinema. Right. And I think, yeah. um, it, you know, more so than you might even think. Right. Because it, we'll get into it. But Ruth Rose, um, you know, like I said, the story of King Kong is a bunch of drunk dudes claiming that they're the real King Kong. But Ruth Rose, the story doesn't get written without Ruth Rose. Right. right. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. We'll we'll get into and it. We'll and get into like, that. But, but like her yeah, yeah, yeah. her contributions are vital to this. And so. I gotta say something, especially Andrew, since you mentioned like imagine the kind of sexism that she underwent. It just what strikes me is especially the fact that she went from being an actress on Broadway to becoming involved in this organization. Like you have to imagine the amount of stigma that all these men were sort of like, oh, she's just an actress and doesn't understand anything and doesn't have any. Like, you know, she, like, I think that just adds another layer and another impediment for people to not take her seriously. I think it makes it even more impressive. I mean, yeah, we don't, t- we, we, in a lot of ways, we don't, we don't treat act- actresses with the same amount of respect we treat actors today, right? And like, you know, that's, yeah. that's, that's, you know, that's a thing that was probably way worse than at, back in the day. So it's just, it, it, it's insane because you, you kind of, you, you kind of look, with how, uh, unfortunately, how little progress we've made in a lot of ways, and I think that's one of the interesting stories uh, from that you can get from this film. It's also really interesting to, to Sophie's point, not just Ruth Rose, but everyone involved in the story, how easily people just jump from profession to profession in a really um, loose way. Like It's like the gatekeepers don't exist in this world where... You know, I'm sure Ruth Rose has had her own gatekeepers because she's a woman in a man's world, right? But what I mean is, like, can you imagine, um, you know, um, a, a famous actor today being like, no, nah, I'm just going to be a zoologist now. You know what I mean? Like, it, it's it's very, it's it feels like a different world. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, in and in, in a lot of ways it does. So, um, uh, one of the things about Grass is that, like, originally, like I said, it was just going to be a university film, but it ended up getting distribution by uh, Paramount Famous Players Lasky, um, which is uh, where it made enough profit for the head of that company, Jesse L. Lasky, to fund their next film, which is where we get to Chang. Yes, we're in 1927 now. We're still not talking about King Kong, but let me tell you, this is all important. We are 30 minutes into this podcast, and we are still nearly, uh, well, we we are almost 10 years away from King Kong still. Right, but again, all of it is so important, right? Because like this film especially, um, because this is Chang, A Drama of the Wilderness, which was made in Siam. And actually featured a monkey prominently. Uh, this time it was more for you know comedic relief. But you know during the making of this film, there is a story uh, that actually opens up living dangerously about this yeah. this story about Cooper riding down a rapids with a tiger that they captured in a wooden cage, and they thought that they had they dosed it enough to so that it would just like kind of go back to sleep. Um, but during the flight uh, down this winding river of this tiny boat, the tiger wakes up and starts destroying the cage. And it's like a crazy story. And when you're like reading that story, you're like, wait a minute, like this is just how they caught King Kong. Like this is crazy. Like all of these all of these elements, you're like, you you begin to realize that like King Kong in a lot of ways is an autobiographical film. 
which yeah. is one of the craziest things. Yeah. Uh, and and then and then on top of all of that, Shotzak had malaria, and then he suffered sunstroke five times. Yep. Shotzak died, almost died, many many times making this movie. Like <laughs> these men have no regard for their own life. You know, and, and again, like Shodzak, even less, right? Because like yeah. what would happen is like when they would finish a movie, uh, Cooper would remain behind for a little while to like live normal life. Shodzak just almost always just goes off to a new, another another crazy land and yeah. just almost dies. Shodzak, you get the feeling um, is like an adrenaline junkie. You know what I mean? Like mm-hmm. he really. Um, values more maybe more than even making the film the fact that his life is at risk (laughs) that you know that that could definitely be uh provident both grass and chang were criticized for not having a love interest but that is um why that line exists in king kong of carl denham being like oh this uh, the the last four pictures they complained that i didn't have a love interest well i'll have a woman on this journey no matter what like it's incredible. It's crazy. It's crazy. Well, this oh, is I- why um, I will always, to some degree, and, and I think it's pretty clear I love King Kong. I think it's a phenomenal film. Why I do think King Kong is um, at least partially misogynistic. I think it's aware that it's misogynistic in some ways, right, uh, about themselves. But definitely um, inserting that line, right, is an attempt to criticize why do I need to bring a woman into this film? You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um, but but what's it, what, but again what's hilarious is that um, that line is written by a woman who yes. knows that it's important for her to be along because right, guy right. almost died. Maybe it's her. a shot, you know, a shot at um, Ernest, right? Um, to some degree, right? Right. Um, there's there's a, in a lot clever of way, you know. Yeah, yeah. It's it's very it's very fascinating. It's one of those things where it makes King Kong a little bit more difficult to like figure out exactly where the line is right uh, on whether or not that is kind of a commentary on her yeah. life or anyways but um the, the next film they made was the movie called four feathers and it was one of the last big budget silent films and it was also their first team-ups with two people who were vital to king kong actress Faye ray and producer david o Zelznick. Faye ray was actually Born in Canada. She was born in Cardston, Alberta. And uh, in in Cardston, there's actually a beautiful uh, Fay Ray drinking fountain, which I thought was just cool. Uh, it might, might be actually just a normal water fountain, but it looks really cool. And it's, it's very nice. Um, she actually began acting at 16. So she was acting, uh, you know, she started acting really, really young. Uh, and she would become the first cinematic scream queen because, like, again, you have to keep in mind uh, when we finally do get to Kong, Kong is only four years after Four Feathers, and Four Feathers is one of the last big-budget silent films. So King Kong is also that added level of – it's it's not uh, Shodzak's first film in sound, but it is Cooper's first film he directs in sound. So it's very it's very fascinating. Um, her first big break was in Eric von Stroheim's picture, The Wedding March, where she was the lead actress. This also, uh, Four Feathers uh, also led to um, Cooper just getting super pissed off because while they were going, because what happened is uh, Four Feathers is a very interesting film because Faye Ray does not really factor into it that much and which is kind of a bummer um she's only in a few scenes but a lot of the things that don't involve africa because cooper and shodzak went to africa to film all of these crazy scenes uh crazy dangerous craziness um and um they shot a whole bunch of like interstitial scenes that were kind of weaved in to the beginning and the end of the movie that were done without Shodzak or Cooper's involvement. So Cooper basically said, all right, fuck the movies. I'm going to go join the commercial aviation industries. And he somehow got on the board of Pan Am. This is what, this is what I'm saying. Like (laughs) this, these people live in a world where you can just be like, eh, I'm just going to go run Pan Am. What? 
Like, how what did he do fuck? that? Like, how did he, what was the interview like? Like, oh yeah, I crashed through a plane twice, almost died behind enemy lines. But I those were flaming coffins. He can't be held responsible for that. I think, yeah, I mean, you hear a lot from like old timers are like, you just need to be more forceful. And you walk in there and you tell them to give you a ring. I think like this is where this mindset comes from because then you could just walk in and be like, I own Pan Am now. You know what I mean? What? Basically, basically, and you think it'd be Cooper's dream job, but Cooper hated it. Of he course, he's bored to bored. tears. He he's bored so to tears. His life is not at risk every day. These people are fucking psychopaths. It's funny psychopaths. because um, Shodzak at this time, like he actually made an entirely, like an entirely another movie. Um, it's called Rango that he made uh, while. While Cooper was working in the aviation industry, Shodzak was uh, doing more dangerous shit. Uh, and apparently this is where the birth of King Kong as an idea came. Now uh, it's kind of hard to exactly yeah. pinpoint that. We're going to go with, um, you know, th- we're going to go with this is where Cooper got the idea for King Kong. Uh, now, who knows about whether or not it was a giant beast at this time. We'll f- figure that out. As we go along, uh, but as we mentioned, uh, you know, Marion C. Cooper loved gorillas, so he was pretty much like looking at the 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 windows of his amazing fucking corporate office, and he was looking at like a tall building, and it was just like, oh, oh, wow, what if a monkey was climbing up? What if a gorilla was climbing up one? And the big the biggest thing that really kind of helped them solidify this idea was the fact that he read the tale of W. Douglas Burden's The Dragon Lizards of Komodo. Burden was a celebrity adventurer, and he brought back a pair of Komodo dragons to the Bronx Zoo. This was the first time that Komodo dragons were ever brought back into society alive. Um, And because of that, they died super quickly. (laughs) Douglas Burden is the bad guy from Up. Like he is fucking just 100%. going into the wilderness and capturing fucking things and trying to bring them back. I mean, with a last know? name like Burden, like you have to be a bad guy. I'm pretty sure that's <laughs> yes, he's a villain. Required, for sure. yeah. It's crazy. It's that 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 alone was like I read multiple articles just to make sure I knew the correct facts about Komodo dragons, and it's like, oh yeah, nope, these are the first ones, and they instantly died because no one had any fucking idea how to care for them. Also, I just love the idea that Marion C. Cooper was sitting in probably making the equivalent of millions of dollars today, sitting in an office, looking out the window, just like, I wish something was getting fucking destroyed. Right. Right, Like, so, so not enough people's lives are at risk right this moment. And I wish it was happening right now in front of my eyes. And I just have to say, like, as an aside, because I'd be remiss to not mention this, Komodo dragons are my sister's favorite animal, and she would find this uh, anecdote absolutely devastating. Komodo dragons are incredibly important to um, King Kong. Yeah, because, you know, um, their deaths actually, I guess, I think it moved Cooper in some way because that's what he, he got the idea for Kong to be a creature that was brought into the modern world and to die tragic tragically right, right? like the this idea of a beast who yeah. is like in complete command of its native land being brought over and just dying because of society kind of thing and i thought that was uh interesting yeah i think this is the element that's born in marion c cooper that leads to him i, I think it's a tidbit that helps us understand that marion c cooper does have a soul you know what i mean like he it does have a conservationist uh, mindset, um, and it's part of the humanity that comes to King Kong, I think, that shines through in that picture, um, that King, that Kong isn't the villain, that people are the villain, right? I always, I do always wonder how much of that was that he realized that he was the villain, because, like, it's, 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 it's very It's hard to say. It's, it's hard, hard to say, to but say. It, it's definitely um, possible that this is the, this is the spark that makes Kong multifaceted as opposed to just another jungle monster picture, 
right? Right, yeah. No, 100%. 100%. Because a lot of the prior jungle uh, pictures, and again, the most famous one being Inagi, one of the most racist films of all time. And those, um, you know... We'll talk about Inagi later. We we will. But that movie had no... um, had no reverence for any uh, any of the others, right? Like no no love for animals, no love for black people. It was no, Anagi is just was, straight up racist. It's yeah. terrible. It's terrible. Um, but uh, we'll, 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 we will talk about that uh, in a little bit. But apparently, um, Cooper Cooper and Burden have a lot of uh, letters that they exchanged yes. uh, post Kong, and I think some of them are some of them I take more issue with than others but it does seem to be pretty pretty fine to just assume that uh this one is true because there was a letter where he was talking to burden and he asked him if uh what he could do to kind of make uh make the movie a little bit more authentic uh he apparently he wanted to be authentic east indian their word for gorilla was kong yeah And, and you know sophie my heart goes out um, with your sister, because I love Komodo dragons as well. Um, I just, you know, hopefully they didn't die in vain, you know? Maybe that's part of the reason why I want um, that to be such an important moment in this, you know? Yeah, well, uh, let's just be glad that no other Komodo dragons were hurt, because there is a few really <laughs> stupid ideas about how to make King Kong. Oh, yeah. This is, this is where we get to the point of... Um, Willis O'Brien is the reason why Kong works in many, many ways. Because what Cooper wanted to do is he wanted to go out, he wanted to film Komodo dragons, and then film gorillas and meld them together with like some maybe split screen, you know, double exposure, things like that. Um, Probably some mats. But none of that would have worked because he would have had to film all of these in the wild. And as we will learn, um, you know, to do a proper like mat, especially in these days, um, you could not have done that on the fly <laughs> in <Yeah. laughs> in another country. Um, and he 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 really was just like, oh my god, fuck the aviation industry. I'm making this sad gorilla movie. The um, white men screaming in a room about being Kong. Willis O'Brien um, probably has the best um, argument in my opinion. yes, and 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 what we'll learn is. He, Willis O'Brien, never claimed to be Kong. Willis O'Brien's oh, yeah, yeah. wife claimed that she saw Kong in him. He he pitched the idea to Paramount. They passed. Davis O'Selznick, who was working with Paramount but, like, left Paramount, um, he was pitched it once. And when he was pitched it the first time, uh, he was basically like, look, Cooper, like, I don't have a studio right now. When David Oselznick officially joined RKO, he brought on Marion C. Cooper as an executive assistant. And one of the ways he kind of got him in was he said, hey, if you help me with RKO, um, you can maybe produce some of your own film. So there you go. Uh, That was all Cooper needed to quit the aviation business and move to California. So he was in New York at the time, so he moved to California. Yeah, I mean, um, we can't really get into all of this right now, but um, it's worth noting how much different the landscape of filmmaking was from a studio perspective during this time. I mean, the studios ran everything. Yeah, that's very true, and RKO was very new. It was new, and it was struggling. Exactly. And um, it was very easy to get pushed around by the likes of like Paramount and Warner Brothers. Right. So um, it's worth noting, though, as I said, we can't get into the depths of that. um, But there's a lot there to understand about how the studios basically ran Hollywood like mafia bosses, you know? Oh, 100%. And that's not, that's not even a joke, right? Like there was fixers. There was like so many murders and everything. Classic Hollywood is fucking insane. I'd recommend listening to um, You Must Remember This. Um, You know, the podcast does a great job of talking about the studio system. There's like a whole series on that. So um, if you want to learn more about that, I definitely recommend it. Yeah, 100%. So Cooper, Cooper, the first one of the first things that Cooper did when he got to RKO was he put together the most dangerous game, and in order to make that film a reality, he hired Ernest P. Shodzak. So there you go. And then when Shodzak was making that film, it actually reunited him with Faye Ray, and you also got introduced to another very important man in the story of Kong, 
Robert Armstrong. And that was who would eventually play Carl Denham in Kong. The sets for the most dangerous game were reused for many sequences in King Kong, and they were all built at the RKO Pathé lot in Culver City. Um, You know, that's the thing that only matters if you care about um, LA. I don't really know anything about LA, but I just, <laughs> there's, there's, there are some amazing stories about, um, yeah. uh, Ray Harryhausen after he saw, um, you know, after Ray Harryhausen saw the original King Kong, when it got released, he would always go to, to the lots where, uh, the big wall was and they would kind of go and they'd kind of watch, uh, watch the walls, uh, which is just kind of fun. There's like, they weren't, weren't doing anything with the big wall. They would just go and watch it. They'd be like, Whoa, wow, look at it. It's bad. And that was kind of in that area. Um, yeah, it was also called, no, I was to say, it was also called like the RKO 40 Acres because it was 40 Acres um, where they where they did a lot of that filming on that back lot. Um, right. Including like Gone with the Wind, Bonanza, Star Trek. A lot of stuff was filmed on that lot. Um, so it is important. Yeah, and actually our uh, Gone with the Wind is what ha- ended up being the end of the, the wall in King Kong because that's, yeah. where, that's the film that actually... Got it all burnt down. After greenlighting the most dangerous game came one of the most important pieces of King Kong history. Because this is when Marion C. Cooper got placed onto the set of Harry O. Hoyt's next film, Creation. If you listen to our episode on The Lost World, um, you would kind of be familiar with Harry O. Hoyt. Uh, he directed that film. And that movie is actually very important to this movie in many ways. Um, this, uh, there's actually proof that they bought the rights to The Lost World and the movie version just to ensure that they wouldn't get sued. So there's a lot to be uh, talked about with that. Um, and to do the effects on The Lost World, he brought on Willis O'Brien and sculptor Marcel Delgado. So when he was uh, trying to make creation, he brought on both of those men again, and they were really hard at work in pre-production making a number of dinosaur figures. So it was it's pretty much creation is where you get all of the dinosaurs from King Kong. All of the dinosaurs that were in the film King Kong were actually made for the movie creation. But the thing is, Creation was going crazy over budget. And the only things they had to show for their work was a very short clip. And that was all the effects work. So the the thing that saved the all of them <laughs> was that, uh, other than O'Hoyt, well, we'll get to him in a bit, but uh, Cooper canceled the project, but he was so impressed by the effects that he saw, he was finally able to kind of get into his head the way to achieve this movie about a gorilla versus giant lizards yeah creation um is an incredible reminder that like even if a project in the creative realm even when projects fail you never know what comes from it right yeah creation is as important to king kong as making king kong itself so hundred percent, hundred percent, and 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 another thing about this 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 way of finally figuring out how to make King Kong was that Cooper could not get the money to do the trips that he used to. This is in the Great Depression, right? No one wants to shell out a bunch of money on a trip. No one has money right now. They need to figure out how to actually do this film without having to go on location, which was completely new to Cooper. Because when Cooper wanted to make a movie before, he would take a boat, take a plane, he would find a way to get there. Now he can't do that. So this is where that final piece of the puzzle comes in. So he brought on Willis O'Brien and Marcel Delgado. And with them became a whole bunch of concept artists like Brian Crabby and Mario Laranaga. And they would eventually uh, get onto the film that would be known as King Kong. A memo from December 26, 1931, from Cooper to Selznick, solidifies their decision to excise O'Hoyt from further work with the studio. They thought that his fee of $10,000 
and a further $400 a week was way too much and they didn't want to retain him. And it's kind of it's kind of sad. It's kind of sad. Um, you know, I you know, there there are uh The Lost World from 1925 is is a very important film but also again it's a very racist film as well. Um mm-hmm. e- even more so than Kong and that's saying something. Um but uh Hoyt seemed like he he was a, a fine director. So it's kind of uh it's kind of sad that he kind of just got thrown into the window. But again, you have to you have to point out that like I'm sure he made this deal because creation was in the works for quite some time, right? And any t- any way to get money during the Great Depression was uh was a smart one but he was getting so much money he was no longer deemed essential because of how much money it was costing them that's what happened uh many of the things that were conceived for this movie creation were incorporated into king kong such as the log sequence the sequence where like the men are chased onto a log uh is directly from creation which is kind of amazing uh, and there's also a a brief shot of a, a pteranodon kidnapping a woman. That that log sequence, um, as it was, you know, um, as it was um, um, created, <laughs> is so cool, right? Like not not as it appears in Kong, but as it was um, thought of initially with like people falling off and like all these creatures living in nooks and crannies alongside and under the log coming out and tearing people to pieces is, um, man, so cool. Yeah, it's interesting. It it is. It's very cool. It's interesting. But one of the things I was not really able to get clear is if how much of that log sequence like was from creation. Like, I'm not sure if creation featured the spider pit although probably because it would probably make it easier to eventually cut out because it didn't actually cost them any extra money to make the models and it seems like the only models that people have records of being created new for king kong was the kong um so uh most likely uh yeah that was all from that original sequence uh which is interesting because originally they were chased by arnisotherium um, and I only bring that up because, uh, Jason, do you remember where we last encountered the Arnistotherium? Um, was that Crater Lake? No, my friend. That was you, Ding Dong, the last dinosaur. That's what I was going to guess, you guys. <laughs> Mass. And that was the first, uh, yeah, I think I, I think in the original creation script, I think that might have been one of the first things that they, they see. But anyways, um, the early work of Willis O'Brien and Marcel Delgado, again, is a huge podcast on its own. I would really recommend listening to our episode on The Lost World because I think we kind of talk about and get to dive into those uh, their careers quite a bit. Uh, but since The Lost World, um, so Marcel Delgado became a studio handyman with First National Pictures. And he kind of took it because he just needed a job, and it was really, really bad. Uh, Marcel Delgado w- was uh, was originally from Mexico, and when he came over to the States and was working with First National Pictures, he received so much racial prejudice uh, at his job, and all of his peers were just hugely racist to him. And again, like, man, Marcel Delgado is crazy important to this story and it's it, it is one of those things where it's just it's so tragic to read about this period of his life um and he was so so happy to rejoin willis o'brien when o'brien wanted to bring him on for creation um when marcel came along though he also brought on his brother victor delgado Victor Delgado is a very fascinating tale, uh, a very fascinating character in King Kong Legacy in that he's not in any of the books. No one has talked about Victor Delgado, but he is in so many behind-the-scenes photos. There are so many photos of Victor working with Marcel to kind of mold and, and create uh, you know, create a whole bunch of the creatures on King Kong. And he just seems like Victor Delgado is kind of like a lost in the shuffle. Um, you know, there are so many people involved. I guess it's 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 easy to, to do. But he's he's in so many prominent yeah. behind-the-scenes photos. 
Yeah, you, you have to wonder how much um, racism plays a role in that as well, like Marcel and Victor being downplayed as to how much um, contribution they had behind the scenes. Right, know? right. Uh, you know, it's 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 fascinating because like the the most information I was be I was able to find about Victor Delgado was actually from Jim Danforth's book because he worked with uh, both of the Delgados for Project Unlimited, which is where um, you know all of that stuff from Jack the Giant Slayer uh, took place. Mm-hmm. So I got some stories about them there. And and, and he talked very highly of both men, uh, and, he, and he enjoyed working with them. So, um, you know, Victor Delgado and Marcel Delgado, definitely do not forget about them. Um, in the meantime, um, for O'Brien, when he was kind of waiting to get brought onto creation, he had so many failed projects. And one of the things about Willis O'Brien is that this is, this is, this is a man whose life just really, really got the better of him constantly. He, he, he just seemed like he couldn't win. Oh, Uh, Willis O'Brien is the tortured artist. You know what I mean? hundred percent. He is the drunk 95% of his life, you know? Uh, yeah, um, yeah. It did seem like he did. He did obtain a, a drinking problem because <laughs> because of this. Um, but like he it, during during this time, he like he had tried to make a movie about Atlantis, and O'Hoyt was very interested in that. And then there was also like he was going to do a Frankenstein film before Universal. By the way, whoa. like he was going to mm-hmm. yeah, like he was trying to get a Frankenstein movies made pre Universal, which would have been huge. I mean, again, there there actually were a few. Frankenstein films made pre-universal, but I believe those were only short films. I believe they're only short silence. Most of those don't exist still, um, but this would have been pretty big had it had it been made. Um, he he kind of saw the writing on the wall for creation when Cooper started to, to kind of do a lot of meetings about it. So immediately he was like, "Oh man, we need to prove to this guy that we can do this gorilla picture he wants to do." So he worked with uh, artist Brian Krabby um, to create a huge artist rendering of a giant gorilla stalking a woman in the jungle. And this is one of the – in every King Kong book, in every King Kong documentary, you see this photo. Um, and it's fascinating because in all of the recreations of this photo, it's in black and white. Now, um, in uh, there is a new uh, – well – there's there's a book about Ray Harryhausen that has a huge huge section on King Kong and they they showed a color version of this photo. They're like, "Look, most people only think that this was a um, you know, that this was a black and white photo, but it's it's important to to note that this this very iconic image of a gorilla kind of stalking a woman in the jungle uh, was actually done in full color as well." This is where we get to some of the very first elements of disagreements on King Kong. Some people think that this is the area and this is the time period that King Kong, uh, he wasn't called King Kong at that point, he was just called Kong, uh, the beast even. Um, this is when he became giant, was this, this image from O'Brien. That seems plausible. It seems plausible that that painting may have planted the idea for Cooper, but also Cooper claimed to have this idea from the beginning. So, eh, who knows? Who knows? It seems, um, you know, certain biographies, certain certain writings about King Kong, uh, you know, play, play it differently. Ray Morton, who wrote the the book that is pretty much like the definitive book on King Kong, seems to have the idea that this O'Brien image is where the gigantic elements mm. come in, but, uh, you know, it's really hard to tell. Yeah, I don't think we'll ever know definitively um, because it seems like even the creators disagreed as to when that happened, you know? So I don't know how you um, really uh, pin that one down, you know? Right, yeah, and that's why it's important to tell both stories, right? Like, I think, like, you know, you make the decision. Like, no, we, we like... I, we have no idea. None of us were there, right? So, kind of, you have to go by. Every, every well, I was alive then. But, oh, well, yeah, I wasn't well, there. Sorry, that, that I was doing true. other things. That, yeah. that is true. 
Uh, I, I did some further further research on this, and I was kind of like looking around, and the earliest memo by Cooper mentioning a giant-sized Kong was dated on the 18th of December, 1931. However, um, there seems to be a idea that there was already test footage being shot by December 12th, 1931. So they were already making... Uh, images that featured gigantic beasts. And that's from like uh, Edgar Wallace's journal. Because Edgar Wallace has a journal from December 12th, 1931 that mentioned gigantic beasts. Now I would imagine those are dinosaurs. And if they're using dinosaurs, you'd think they would be using giant Kongs. Right, yeah. You're not having a little little monkey fighting a T-Rex. Do you know what I mean? Probably not. Probably not. But here here we have Edgar Wallace probably... Um, the last major character, right? Yes, um, yes, and, and and in many ways the the most awfully debated character. Um, and I, I I will say right now, um, I we I think we both think that he's a very important character to this story. Yeah, I I really do. I think Edgar Wallace doesn't get his of of the you know um, of the screaming white men in rooms about who's Kong. Um, Edgar Wallace, I think, is the most. Um, robbed of you know well, what I mean? Like, well, because he, he he could he could never he, he could can't never defend done himself. It. We'll, yeah, we'll, yeah, we'll we'll get we'll get into it. But yeah, yeah he, he 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 did not make it to that point. <laughs> <laughs> yes, so, exactly, exactly. Um, yeah. So so at this point, uh, you know, Komodo dragons were dropped entirely because they were all they had all these creation dinosaur models. So they just were like, hey, man, we'll just use well, it away. And, and after all, what's the um, what's the obsession with the Komodo dragon except for the fact that it feels like a giant dinosaur that's alive no. right now, right? Yeah, yeah. No, that's that 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 is uh, a, a very true. Um, th- there was again, there was more kind of discussion as to how much stop motion they were going to use. Um, there, there are reports of uh, Cooper only wanted to use it for full body shots, and they wanted to use a man in the suits for the rest of the sequences. I only really bring up the fact that Cooper was kind of, uh, you know, debating about whether or not to use suitmation for the fact of every single King Kong book loses their fucking mind as soon as Kong is put in an ape suit. Like, people just lose their mind. Lose their mind. Like, as soon as, like, oh, he fought Godzilla. Oh, he's in a, he was in an ape suit. Oh, the world is ending. Yeah. Oh. I mean, it's, it's worth noting it. that these um, books are written by giant fucking nerds. Um, well, who like freak us. Out about like it. us. Right. Again, yeah. again, like us. Uh, but it's also <laughs> worth noting that these books are written the majority. Like, when you find the first wave of these books. The first real wave of these books that are like the making of and go really deep into Kong are made as a response to the 1976 Kong, right? So most of these books, especially the older ones that I had to track down, the first thing they were saying is, we're going to talk about King Kong because fuck the Dino Dealer at this version. Oh, yeah. Yep. (laughs) So much anger. Yeah, and the other other one is also like the 2005 is the next uh, big – Kong stuff, and that's when a lot of the other books are written, and that, of course, was to kind of coincide with the new Peter Jackson one. So, every time a new big Kong movie comes out, someone wants to make one talking about the old one. So, it's, yeah, it's yeah, and you know, a part of the fire that keeps King Kong alive is the ignition of nerd anger. Right, it's true. It's true. Sparks the flame that keeps the fire burning for King Kong is how fucking angry nerds get, you know? Yeah, yeah. Now all the pieces are there. All of the pieces of Kong are in place by Marion C. Cooper. But now he had to get money for it. He had to convince a whole bunch of people in a boardroom to make it so that he could do this movie. Um, his friend, his old producing pal, David O. Selznick, was, was super on board but the problem is the rest of the RKO board was not. Uh, luckily, Selznick helped make uh, Cooper give uh, a proper chance because they 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 let the board see an entire proof of concept. They they kind of showed. I I, I believe at this point it was just um, various. Uh, 
artistic renderings uh, to kind of get the money to do the animation. Uh, and it appears that the the idea that they would be allowed to finally put pen to paper on King Kong and do this test footage uh, that would be so important to the final picture was on Christmas Day. And that is where we're going to end the first part of this uh, retrospective. Uh, because, uh, you know, we're going to get into the actual creation of King Kong. Because yeah. this will be when uh, they finally start rolling uh, rolling cameras. And, and you know, um, this is a podcast essentially years in the making, right? Like, yeah. that's how much research went into this particular podcast. Um, uh, you know, I started reading about King Kong, I think, three years ago at this point intending to make a podcast about it. Um, and here we are today doing it. Um, there's no way you could cover this with any degree of um, sincerity or um, the work it's due without it being multiple podcasts, I don't think. I, I, I mean, there's just too much, you know? We've been yeah. talking about an hour and haven't even gotten to the actual fucking movie we're talking about. Of course, of course, right? Like, that's... Uh, it's, it, is, uh, it is truly... Uh, crazy. Um, anyway, so we'll, we'll be uh, we're releasing that one next week. Uh, but Sophie, um, where can we find the rest of your work on the internet if they're interested? So you can find me over at Bloody Good Horror. I write horror film reviews over there and occasionally appear on their podcast. I also have my own horror podcast with my younger sister, Hannah. That is called 28 Days Ladier. And you can follow me on Twitter at Phillies Femme. That's Phillies like the baseball team and Femme like a French lady. Poifik, poifik. Uh, Jason, where can we find you? Oh, you know, um, Bad Attitude 86 on Twitter. I have a couple podcasts. Um, this one, Milkshakes and Mimosas, you know that about all that. Um, also, Moments of Madness, where I talk about social issues in television. Um, Generation Intonation, where I talk about music um with my stepdaughter so um it's out there it's around you can find it perfect perfect and if you want to get the huge list of sources that we used uh check in the show notes because i will be uh writing about all of them in uh in detail <laughs> that might be longer than these actual podcasts is the oh yeah maybe maybe oh my goodness there's so many things but uh other than that you can always follow us uh, uh on twitter at, at wine movie nerd uh okay so uh thank you and uh be prepared because uh it's about to get crazy bye guys <laughs> goodbye